All right, thank you so much, guys, for leading us. If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. As I mentioned last week, normally about this time of year, I'm leaning into a series of messages specifically on Christmas. Just did not sense the Lord leading in that direction, and so decided to continue to work through 1 Peter. And we've come to kind of a mini-section, a subsection in the greater book about suffering. And one of the points that we made last week is one of the reasons I believe the Lord has led us to this passage is because I believe while in many ways on the surface Christmas is a very happy time, it's a time of uh, celebration and uh, kind of exuberant joy as we're expressing our thanks for God and His gracious mercy towards us. We also recognize that for many people, Christmas is a time of challenge and difficulty. People are maybe sitting at a Christmas table where a loved one sat year, the last year previous and they're not there this year. Or sometimes Christmas can exacerbate financial challenges and struggles that people have. Or maybe it's uh, that moment in time when you know you've got to be around that family member you have some tension with and some problem with. The book of First Peter gives instruction into how you and I can suffer well. Last week, Peter talked about the reality of suffering, that it's there, it's there for a purpose, it's there for our good and for God's glory. And what he's going to do this morning is he's going to help us recognize that there is a way to go beyond just surviving through difficulty and suffering. What Peter wants us to see today is that there is indeed a way to thrive in the midst of suffering. But the only way we do that is by taking advantage of the provision God's given to us in the midst of suffering. There are four provisions I want to show you in the passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning that God has given us for suffering. With that in mind, would you please stand to your feet as we honor the reading of God's Word in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 19. 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 7. We read these words. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name." For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will, become the outco- what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, 
what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's holy word. This is his holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you please pray with me, church? Father God, we pray in these moments that as we open your word and we receive the bread of life, that you would illumine our minds, you would open our minds to understand it, and you would soften our hearts to receive it. God, would you remove any distraction that would vie for our attention in these moments? And Lord, as we read your word together as a family, would you help us not just hear your word, but would you help us be doers of your word as well? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. Believers can do more than just survive suffering. We believe it's possible that they can thrive in the midst of suffering when they receive God's provision. There are four provisions I want to show you this morning that God's given us in the midst of suffering. And the first one is the church. The church. Now, I've got to throw out a disclaimer when I say the word church because there's a lot of wrong ideas that come into our minds about what the church is. When I say church, what I'm not talking about is the building, uh, the physical uh, brick and mortar that you and I sit in this morning. When I say church, I'm also not talking about just the service. I think it's very easy and maybe even more probable that today people equivocate church with a worship service, like it's a concert. No, church is actually the group of people. It's the believers gathered together around a common bond in Christ who exist for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the administration of the ordinances. That's what a church is. It's a group of baptized, professing believers covenanting together to make Jesus known to their neighbors and the nations. One of the reasons I believe Peter talks about the church as a provision for us in suffering is through verses 8 through 11, you'll notice he mentions the phrase one another three times. He says in verse 8, we're to love one another. He says in verse 9, we're to show hospitality to one another. And verse 10, he says, we're to serve one another with our gifts. Now, the reason I believe he's emphasizing the role the church has to play is because God's plan is that the church is indeed this place where we're supposed to do all these one-anothering, where we're supposed to serve, love, and be hospitable to one another. And the first thing he says when he talks about this kind of community is he says we're to love one another. And he says this in such a way that he helps us understand it with the last phrase in verse 8. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly And he helps us understand what that looks like since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying that I'm to love, I'm looking at Ron Mason right now. I'm to love Ron Mason in such a way that I overlook his faults, of which Ron has many. (laughs) Including making fun of my hair and all kind of manner of things that he does. But I'm to love and care for the people in this body in such a way that I'm not quick to find fault with them. That doesn't mean I don't address a problem. If Ron and I were to have a problem with each other, we could talk about it. We could deal with it. That doesn't mean I overlook sins in their lives. But what it does mean is if I love somebody the way Peter's describing it, it means I'm quick not to find fault, but I'm quick to assume the best of someone. You ever been in a situation where you've been quick to assume the worst, right? Somebody makes a comment, somebody does something, 
And after that little exchange is over, you're in the car with your spouse or with your friend. You go, did you hear what that person said? I think they were trying to say this about me or that about me. And you, and you kind of pick apart what somebody does. That's exactly the opposite of the kind of love Peter's talking about. The love Peter's talking about is that you get in the car and you go, yeah, I didn't really like what that person said, but I'm going to assume that they weren't trying to like personally attack me. The kind of love Peter's talking about assumes the best. Hypercritical spirits or attitudes that are always quick to find an offense or a fault are not birthed out of love for one another. Those kinds of spirits are actually birthed out of love for self. The kind of attitude that brings about this hypercritical spirit and attitude actually comes from self-absorption, everything being about me. Whereas what Peter's saying is we're to love people in such a way that I'm quick to assume the best of them. Second thing he says is we're to show one another hospitality. This is the idea of being overly generous to someone. And notice what he says here, verse 9, we're to do that without grumbling. You ever served somebody and grumbled as you did it? You ever done the right thing but done it with the wrong attitude? In our house, we have a saying, uh, right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. So when we ask our children to do something, we say we want you to do it right away. That means right when mom says it, we want you to do it all the way, totally and completely what we ask you to do, not half of it, but all of it. And we want you to do it with a happy heart. What Peter's saying is that we're to be generous to one another with happy hearts. I asked Rex for his permission to do this. I'm so thankful to be the pastor of a church that when uh, one of our members needs help with their home and doing some remodeling like the Morrisons were, we had people rush to their home to encourage them, to help them uh, on a cold day, to help invest in their lives as they helped build this addition onto their house. That's the kind of hospitality. Now, I haven't checked with Rex, by the way. Did anybody grumble why they did it? No grumbling. Okay, that's good. So our guys passed the test. But we're to serve one another with a kind of generosity that doesn't come with uh, ill intent or with a bad attitude. He also says, verse 10, we're to serve one another with the gifts that God's given us. And he talks about the gifts that God's given us. He talks about us using them as good stewards. And this is the biblical concept and one of the key places in the Bible where we get the idea of stewardship. And that is this. The gifts that you have been given from God are actually not yours. They're God's. You're just a manager. If you think about the difference between a manager and an owner, the owner is totally responsible and is the final authority in what happens with these resources. A manager is just someone who's following the directives of the owner to use the resources that they've been given for the owner's purposes. In the same way, our time, our talent, and our treasure are all gifts God's given us that we're to use to serve and invest in one another. Peter gives some examples. He talks about one who speaks, speaks as if they have the gift of speaking, the gift of teaching, that they should do so as if God himself is speaking through them. The one who serves, the one who encourages and tries to strengthen, that they should do it as if God's working through them to invest and help others. There should be a weight to understanding that we're a part of a body where we're called to serve one another. Now, here's the point I want to make to you this morning. The way the church helps me suffer well 
is it, it helps me suffer well because it displays spiritual realities in a physical way. The reason the church is a provision God's given us for suffering is because it helps me see spiritual things in a physical way. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It's very easy for things we read in the Bible or truths that we read about that we can't see with our eyes to say just theoretical. God loves you, right? That's true. That's biblical. It's right. But sometimes it's hard to feel that love, right? It's hard to really acknowledge that it's there, especially in the midst of suffering. And what the church is meant to be is the church is meant to be the body of Christ, a physical expression of spiritual realities. So that when I'm feeling low, when I'm going through difficulty and suffering, one of the things that God does is he gives me people who show me love in a physical way that reminds me that the things I'm believing in are actually true. So this past Wednesday night at prayer meeting, we were talking about prayer requests, and there's a family in our church that was sharing a prayer need. I have not asked their permission to share this, so I won't share their name specifically, but I'm sure they would be happy to talk to you later. I can point them to you afterwards if you'd like. But they were sharing a prayer need about a member of their family who's in a challenging situation, and through their prayers, they have seen God answer in miraculous ways. And I think we actually use the word, that's a miracle, is what we're watching And the reason I mention that is because when we see those things happen and we see God work in mighty and powerful ways, it's a reminder that what we're believing in is real. These things that we talk about, these spiritual realities that we sing about, that sometimes we can't see with our eyes, the church is God showing us physically, visibly, no, he is real. There is no other explanation for a group of people who come from different backgrounds, culturally, socioeconomically, there's no explanation for us to be able to get along and move together in Christ other than that we're united by the glorious gospel of Jesus. The church is meant to be the gospel with skin. Let me ask you a question. Do you see the church as something you need? Do you see the kind of one anothering that Peter talked about in these three verses as a provision, as a help that God has given you to minister to you in the midst of suffering? Now, I'm talking to people who got up and drove through the ice and the snow to be here. So I'm assuming the answer is yes. You guys get it. You're, I'm preaching to the choir. But we're also, by the way, broadcasting this live on Facebook Some of our members are at home watching this, and I would just ask you guys as well, is the church something that you need? Do you recognize that it's a gift that God has given you? Let me ask you a follow-up question. Do you have relationships with other believers in this body who know you well enough to know your biggest problems? Do you have relationships with other people in this church that are close enough where you can open up to them and they can open up to you and you can bear your burdens with them? The way the church is meant to provide for you and me in the midst of suffering is through that kind of burden-bearing and displaying spiritual, invisible realities in a visible, physical way. Number two, 
The second way God provides for us in the midst of suffering is through the Christian life. The Christian life. Look at verse 7. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Skip down to verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Both in verse 7 and verses 12 through 13, Peter talks about the end. He talks about the end, that Christ is coming again. And we know that that's part of a bigger plan, right? That Jesus died for your sins and for my sins. He rose again on the third day. He spent a period of time with his disciples on this earth. He ascended back into heaven. And one day, he is returning to judge the living and the dead. And Peter says, between Christ's ascension and his return, you and I have been given a new life. You and I have been given a role and responsibility and a manner of living that we're called to. This is one of the glorious truths about grace, that grace doesn't just save us from our past sins and offer forgiveness to us. Grace actually gives us a new life in the present. It's not just something for the future so that we're with Christ in heaven one day when we die or when he returns. Grace means God's transforming me now in the present. And one of the ways that we see this reflect itself, this kind of new life he gives us, is Peter talks about an attitude that we should have, we should have as we follow Jesus, and he talks about an action that we should have. Attitude and action. The attitude that he says we should have is one of joy. Did you see it in verse 13? Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. This is Peter's way of again saying, if you're suffering, especially if you're suffering because you're obeying Christ, you're following him and you encounter difficulty and pain, when you are in that moment, be thankful, rejoice. When he talks about joy, he's talking about a vibrant hope and gratitude to Christ in the face of difficulty. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of Murphy's Law. Anybody ever heard of Murphy's Law in here? Uh, Fred Cochran, a few years back, introduced me to Murphy's Law. I don't know how I'd miss that. Uh, but it basically goes like this. If something can go wrong, it will go wrong, right? Christians acknowledge that law. We don't deny it because we see sin in the world. We see brokenness. We see problems. And what I would just say is this. Joy doesn't mean denial of an axiom like Murphy's Law. Joy means somebody who's positive vibrant in the face of Murphy's Law, in spite of brokenness and problems in the world. What Peter's saying is not that we won't face difficulty. In fact, he even says in verse 12, don't be surprised. You're going to face problems. You're going to face difficulties. Don't be surprised as if something strange or foreign has happened to you when you face suffering. But instead, our attitude should be thanks and gratitude and hope. And what this is all grounded in is what he's saying is joy means that I'm choosing to look at everything I see in my life through the lens of Jesus. I'm choosing to look at my circumstances through what Christ has done for me. Imagine if one of you, uh, we get the word that, that one of you has won the lottery. You've won, I don't know, $20 million. 
And uh, of course, one of the first dilemmas you should wrestle with is, is whether you should tithe on that, right? That's an important consideration that I'd be happy to talk about the ethical dilemma of with you at a later time. Uh, for the purposes of this illustration, we'll bypass that ethical conundrum and move right to the reality of how your life would change if you won $20 million. You win $20 million, and you get home from the bank and counting all your money, and you walk in the door, and your house is flooded. Flooded. Water on every level. There's damage in every kind of place. You think you might have to tear your house down because it's so bad. Now, in that moment, you're going to be a little upset, but what's going to keep you from losing it? Hopefully, you've got a good insurance policy, right? But what's going to keep you from losing it? $20 million in the bank. And you go, well, yeah, my house is flooded, my house is a mess, but I got $20 million sitting over here parked in an account earning interest, like .002 interest, but nevertheless, it's earning interest. This is great. So that reality is what you begin to look at your whole life through the lens of, right? You're looking at everything through the lens of, I've got $20 million. Everything's going to be okay. Spiritually speaking, you do understand you've won the lottery. Spiritually speaking, what Jesus has done for you is greater than $20 million. Because he's forgiven your past, your present, your future. He's given you a new life. He's given you peace and purpose, a new identity for which you can never lose. And so when I face difficulty and suffering, I'm putting on the lens of Christ and going, I'm going to be joyful because even though this is happening, I still have a spiritual lottery in my account. This is what Peter's saying. Peter's saying that we should train ourselves to be joyful. There's an attitude that we should have as a part of this new Christian life. But in verse 7, he also talks about a set of actions, okay? So attitude and actions. And he talks in verse 7 about being self-controlled and sober-minded. The action that I believe Peter's talking about here is that our lives should have a purity to them. That I'm no longer living for my desires, what I want, what I feel I should have, but I'm seeing that I should live for Christ, that I recognize that what sin offers me, while it may seem like pleasure in the moment, it's a lesser, lesser, lower pleasure that's short-term, that actually kills me, but that the pleasure Christ offers me is so much greater that I follow Him. This sober-minded and self-controlled literally means that I am a person who's no longer a slave of my desires, but I am now a servant of Jesus Christ. That kind of action, that kind of set of activities in my life means that I'm living a life of submission because I see the pleasures of Christ that he offers me as better and that I, through my attitudes, my, my thoughts, my attitudes and my actions, I begin to look more like Jesus. Now there's an important qualification that Peter gives us in this verse that we don't need to miss. Did you notice the end of verse 7? Look at verse 7 with me again. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers. In other words, there's a connection between the purity in my life and my prayer life. There's a connection between purity and personal holiness and devotion to prayer. Said another way, there's a connection between purity and spiritual discernment and vibrancy in my life. 
We were going through the book of James this past Wednesday night, and one of the things that you'll notice is that the book of James is clear about what real wisdom really is. Wisdom is not theory or having the right set of knowledge or information. Wisdom is actually something that's lived in our lives. So reverse, where does the person really find wisdom in their lives? It's when they're living a life of purity and holiness before the Lord. That's a person who's really seeing things with spiritual eyes as they really are. Now, here's the point I want to make to you. The reason this is a provision for us in the midst of suffering is because purity helps me see what God is doing clearly. The reason this is so important when it relates to suffering is because in the midst of suffering, a commitment to purity and personal holiness helps me see things as they really, really are. Obedience is the way oftentimes God reveals to us issues beyond the surface. So let me explain what I mean by that. When you're going through suffering, oftentimes the reason you're going through difficulty and pain as a Christian is because God's trying to get your attention about something in your life that you need to deal with. And here's what I found in my life. If in the midst of suffering, I'm still dealing with habitual sins that I've dealt with for 10, 15, 20 years... It's hard for me to see beyond the surface of my life into these deeper parts of my attitudes and thought patterns that I have. Unless there's a purity, and I'm not talking about perfection, I'm not talking about that you never sin, but unless there's a commitment to holiness in my life, when suffering hits, it's oftentimes difficult to see beyond the surface of my life into these deeper issues. And so what you find sometimes is we go through trial after trial after trial because we haven't learned the lesson that God is trying to teach us. Let me give you an example from my personal life. Believe it or not, as a pastor, not everyone always agrees with every decision I make. Did you know that? I know that's a news flash. I know that's like breaking news. But... But, but not everybody always agrees with me. And you know what? That's okay. Not everybody's always going to agree with every decision I make or everything that I think we should do as a church. That's not always going to happen. But in my three and a half years here, one of the things that I've learned is when I face seasons of disagreement, when I face seasons of difficult decision, and not everybody agrees with me, one of the challenges that God has brought into my life is to ask me, Spencer, why are you doing this? Why are you serving me? Are you serving me because it's always easy and everybody's always going to agree with you and everything's always going to go your way? Are you serving me because you love me? And I got to tell you, that's a lesson that goes beyond just the surface of my life. And if I'm not paying attention, if I'm not walking faithfully with the Lord, I can miss these lessons that suffering has for me that go beyond the surface of my life into my heart into my attitudes, into my motives. So let me ask you a question. Are you looking for God and what he's doing in the midst of suffering beyond just the surface of your life? Are you trying to walk in holiness and purity, not perfection, but in purity, submitting your life to the Lord, 
so that you can see beyond just the surface into the deeper parts of your life that God's trying to deal with. I'm convinced one of the reasons some people never grow in their faith is because when they face suffering, they're not prepared to see what God's really trying to address in their hearts. And sometimes what happens is we go through the same cycle over and over and over and over again, never learning the lesson God really has for us in the first place. The reason purity is so essential in our lives is it moves some of those obvious, very habitual sins we deal with out of our view so that when God brings suffering into our lives, we can see what he's doing beyond below the surface into our hearts. Is there habitual sin right now in your life that you need accountability for? Maybe it's your tongue. Maybe it's gossip. Guys, maybe it's the computer or your phone and what you're looking at when nobody else is around. Is there an attitude of bitterness that you're harboring towards somebody that you know you've dealt with for years, but you've never been freed from? The answer is not doubling down and just trying to do it on your own. The answer is getting help from the body. I'll tell you this. Until some of those things are dealt with in our lives, it's difficult in the midst of suffering to see beyond the surface of what God's doing. Number three. Number three. The third provision he gives us is the Holy Spirit. Look in your Bibles at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter says one of the third, the third provision God gives us to help us suffer well is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is fully God living within us. If you know Jesus as your Savior, if you're a Christian, that is, if you've repented of sin, turned from that, and you've trusted Christ and you're following Him, one of the things that happened when you became a Christian is God gave you Himself. You know one of the most incredible things is about grace? Is God doesn't just offer us forgiveness through some jar of forgiveness He pours on us and, and cleanses us. The way that God offers you and I forgiveness is He gives us Himself. Isn't that incredible? God gives us his presence. So when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you. And what he says here is one of the reasons you and I can be blessed and we can thrive in the midst of suffering is we have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now he's quick, he's quick to clarify that we experience the Spirit's presence most vibrantly, most vividly, not when we're acting in disobedience, we're acting in obedience. He, he said in verse 15 that we shouldn't suffer as someone who's doing evil. That's his clarification again, that what he's talking about is righteous suffering. You do realize that there's suffering that we face. It's the consequence of our poor choices. He says, that's actually not what I'm talking about. He says, the way that you're going to experience the Spirit's comfort is when you're walking in close fellowship with him. The way that you're going to experience the Spirit and what He has to say to you and what He has to work in your life is by walking in close fellowship with Him. And on that day, He says in verse 16, you and I glorify God. 
Now, what I want you to know is I believe the reason the Spirit is a provision God has given us in the midst of suffering is because the Spirit provides comfort to us from the inside out. There have been times in my life when I've been going through difficulty or challenge or hardship, and by all exterior circumstances, it looks like everything's going wrong. So Michael Bean's in the back here. You guys know Associate Pastor Michael Bean? Michael, was it Friday morning you left? Michael left Friday morning to try to get to a funeral in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, he had the idea that he was going to drive from here to Nashville. And how long were you on Interstate 70? Four hours? Five hours? Okay, so he was on Interstate 70 between here and St. Louis, eight hours. Uh, didn't make it to Nashville. It was obvious to me. God didn't want you in Nashville, Michael. Don't know why. Somebody else preached the funeral of a former student that he had. But in the midst of all those kind of experiences, how can someone like Michael, who's sitting in traffic for eight hours, trying to get to this funeral, trying to, how can we have peace when everything around us seems to be going wrong? You ever had experiences like that? The way that you and I experience peace is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what I want you to know. There is a way God has given you to turn up the volume on the Holy Spirit's voice in your life. Do you know what it is? It's the Bible. The Bible is a volume knob for the Holy Spirit in your life. How do I turn up the voice and the comfort of the Holy Spirit in my life? It's by getting into this book calling verses to mind when you're in the midst of difficulty, like sitting on Interstate 70 for eight hours. Calling verses and and going back over God's word when you're sitting in that hospital room with somebody that you love and you care about who's going through difficulty. The Bible is like this volume knob for the Holy Spirit in our lives that provides comfort and healing to us. One of the reasons I mentioned that this morning is because as you're coming to the new year, one of the ways I would exhort you and encourage you is to consider getting into the Bible every single day starting January 1. January 1, as you're thinking about New Year's resolutions, as you're thinking about things you want to do differently next year, I want to encourage you and challenge you to try to read your Bible every day. We have a tool that we put together here at Riverview that will take you through the Bible in a whole year. We have those scattered throughout the building. Uh, We're happy to get you one of those. But as you're looking forward to the new year, one of the ways I challenge you with this passage of Scripture is to think about getting in the Word every day. Now, let me just caution you. Because when I say this, I have a wave of people come back to me and say, okay, I started reading, but I didn't get anything out of it. And here's what I want to say to you. There are definitely helps that we need when we read the Bible. Okay? Okay. instruction, classes, equipping, coming in here and good teaching so you can learn how the Bible works together. But here's one of the things that I would just try to get you to think about when it comes to reading the Bible and not getting anything out of it. When you go to the gym, here's Ethan Lee over here to my right. Ethan goes to the gym a lot. See his truck down here at the hill all the time in the morning. When Ethan goes to the gym and he finishes curling, I don't know what Ethan's curling, probably 150 pounds, something like that. He's, he's a beast. He's curling this weight He doesn't finish eight reps of curling the the weight and go to the the mirror and go, huh, look at how much bigger my muscle's getting after just doing those eight reps. 
That would be silly, right? You really only see results after a long period of time in exercise and working out. In the same way, it is silly many times for us to read the Bible and go, well, what did I get out of it? What kind of emotional kind of feeling did I get from that? Because really what, what people are saying to me when they say I didn't get anything out of it is I didn't feel euphoria, like I've got my face shining because I've been on the mountain with God. A lot of times what we have to remember is reading the Bible is a lot like a relationship. We're talking to someone. Some conversations I have with my wife are really dynamic. We have a really good conversation, a lot of important things we're talking about. Other times, it's more mundane. We're just talking as normal people talk about the normal activity of life. Your relationship with God is not that different. Oftentimes when you read the Bible, God may have something very, very pointed and very, very important for you to see. Oftentimes, it takes maybe several days for God to say something to you. And a lot of times, if I may just be candid, it's not because God's not speaking to us. Sometimes we've not trained our hearts and our minds to hear what God has to say. So let me just ask you this question. Are you trying to turn up the volume of the Holy Spirit's voice in your life? If one of the provisions God has given you and I in the midst of suffering is the Holy Spirit, are you and I taking advantage of the volume knob he's given us through his word? I'm not asking you just to check another box or just to go through another routine, but do you actually see the word as a way God's going to minister to you in the midst of suffering? You know, what I find sometimes is very unfortunate is that when people face suffering, oftentimes they pull back from everything, Right? because they don't want somebody to know that they're going through a difficult time, or they, they kind of disengage from spiritual practices because they're just trying to figure things out, when that's the time when they actually need them the most. Number four, and finally, the fourth provision God has given us is the discipline of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord. Verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Here, Peter talks about judgment. What he's talking about kind of at 10,000 feet is that God's response to sin is to address it head on. In the life of the believer and the non-believer, God deals with sin. For the non-believer, God's response to sin is to judge that. That's what he's talking about. If the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and those who don't believe the gospel? God's response to people who do not know him is punishment because he's trying to point them. He's, He's made provision for them of Christ. And if they reject that, they receive his wrath and condemnation for their sins. But But for believers... God still deals with our sin. He just deals with it in a different way. God doesn't judge us for our sin. We're not under the wrath and condemnation that we rightfully deserve. But what God does do is he disciplines us. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. What that means is God is committed to dealing with sin in my life to help me become more like Christ. This is part of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This is also part of the plan that God has for suffering. It's there to purify me and wean me off of loving and worshiping myself and sin and move me to worship Christ. 
And Peter says that our response to this discipline should be to entrust ourselves to God. That you and I, even in the midst of suffering and difficulty, should say, I don't understand why all this is happening, but God, I trust you. Remember the truth of the story of Job. Job goes through incredible difficulty and struggle and sorrow and pain. But the point of the book of Job is I don't have to always understand why in order to trust God. I oftentimes will not always understand why something's happening to me, but I can always trust him. Here's the point. God's discipline is a provision to us because it shows me that God is more committed to my holiness than I am. (laughs) Ever think about that? God is more committed to finishing the work he started in you than you and I are. Because I got to tell you, if God put two paths in front of me, the easy path that's filled with easy victories and no problems and the difficult path, I don't know about you, but I'd usually pick the easy path. But what God knows is this is not the path that forces me to deal with some of the issues in my life. He knows that the path of difficulty, the path of sorrow at many points, is the way that he purifies my hope in him. And this is why Peter says, even in the midst of this difficult path that God takes me down, you and I are to trust our creator and continue to serve him, continue to do good. The reality is you do this all the time. You do this all the time in your life, you just don't realize it. Every time you go to the dentist, you do this. Right, Bruce? People's lives are in Bruce's hands. Resident dentist back there. You open your mouth, someone begins to poke around in places I don't know about you, but I don't like them poking around. And at times they say, we're going to need to drill on this, or we're going to need to pull this, or we're going to need to do this. And in that moment, when that dentist comes to me and says, you need to pull this, you need to do this, I've got a choice to make, don't I? I can decide to open myself up to the path of pain and discomfort because I trust that person, or I can decide, I don't trust you at all, I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to find a different way for me to do this. And do you know what we would find out? If we go the, the route by ourselves, somebody said it, it would not turn out well for us. I mean, imagine that Bruce is in my mouth trying to pull a tooth, and I say, hold on a second. I think I can do this better than you. Give me those pliers. And I are going to reach in my mouth and try to pull the tooth myself. Now, that's kind of silly, but that's what we do with God. God says, here's the path of difficulty I have for you. Here's the path of sorrow and pain, but you got to trust me because it's going to be better for you on the other side. And we go, nah, I think I'll take the pliers and do this myself. What you and I are confronted with in those moments is, are we going to trust that God knows better than I do? So let me just ask you that question. So maybe this morning, maybe even in the midst of suffering, are you trusting that God knows better than you do in the midst of suffering? Are you trusting that God knows what he's doing and that he's more committed to your holiness than you and I are? Some of you right now, I'm looking at your faces all over the room, some of you are enduring suffering right now. I know some of you are. 
Some of us are not in the midst of difficult pain and suffering at the moment, but the Bible is clear we will face that kind of suffering in our lives. When you and I find ourselves in those moments, let's suffer well by taking advantage of the provision God has given us, his church, the new life he's given us in Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the discipline he provides. Would you pray with me, church? Father God, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your kindness and your mercy towards us. God, we thank you that, Lord, you do know better than us. God, we thank you that you are more committed to our holiness than we are. And what that means is, Lord, sometimes you walk us through difficulty. You walk us through hardship. God, I pray for anyone here who's walking through the difficult pain of trial and suffering. Some of it's very poignant in people's lives, the physical pain they're dealing with, Father. Some of the people in here are dealing with emotional and relational or pressures that they feel. Well, there are some in here that, that are indeed, as Peter described, it, suffering for righteousness sake. They're obeying you. They're doing the right thing in their suffering. And God, I pray that you would take these provisions that you've given us, that we've discussed this morning in your word, and you would just apply them like a salve to the people's hearts in this room. God, I pray that you would remind us that we don't always have to understand why to trust you. And Lord, that you would so root this truth in our hearts, that it would be anchored in our hearts, so that when we face difficulty, that anchor in you holds. Finally, Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know you, somebody who's listening to this and trying to figure out what Christianity is all about, I pray that you would show them their need for you. I pray that you would show them how much you love them, that Jesus did indeed die for them and he rose again. And he offers this new life to them if they'll repent and trust you. Finally, Lord, I pray for people here who may think they're Christians when they're not. I pray that you'd open their eyes to see that Christianity is not something you're born into. It's not something you get through just attendance at church. It's something that only happens by turning from our sin and trusting you. God, you're the only one who can sort all that out. And so we leave your word and your spirit to do the work that only the Holy Spirit can do. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing as we close?